0: This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, Slate.com, The Daily Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Ring of Fire, and NPR with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report.
1: these trying times, it's important to stay positive or negative. This is tip of the hat, wag of the finger. First, a tip of my hat to Really Big Coloring Books Incorporated for publishing the Tea Party Coloring Book for Kids. It's full of pictures, puzzles, and games designed to teach kids Tea Party values. And at 32 pages, it is more comprehensive than the other conservative kids' activity book, The GOP's Pledge to America. In in this Tea Party coloring book, kids will be able to color in pictures of the American flag with kid-friendly messages like, the Tea Party calls upon our representatives to limit the government's role in everyday life and to support people and businesses, but not demand from control or overtax the people or businesses. Fun. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing brings joy to a child like a five-clause sentence. (laughs) You know, I'd love to see more Tea Party kids' books, like Christine O'Donnell's Rainy Day Book of Masturbation Alternatives. Or, Or this one for New York's gubernatorial Tea Party candidate, Down on the Farm with Carl Palladino. Featuring this fun drawing of a woman and a horse where the woman... And that, kids, is how centaurs are made.
2: Uh, Hi, this is Ken. I'm from South Carolina. And down here, there's not a whole lot of uh, liberal media to talk, to listen to. So I found you on the internet and uh, liked it from the beginning. There's a lot of sources, some that I don't get to uh, hear a lot of, so that's good. It also has uh, introduced me to several other podcasts and such that I have uh, since gone to. So uh, I think uh, it's a great site. And that's why I contribute and uh, keep up the good work and keep spreading the news.
3: Three people at the Homington Post collaborate on a really interesting piece Lucia Graves, Ryan Grimm, and Ben Craw. Uh, what they did was first they went to GOP.gov and they found the talking points that the Republicans had set out for their members. And then Ben Craw, who's their video guy, put together a video of them simply repeating those talking points and all of them doing it over and over again. When uh, later in the piece they asked the GOP, hey, these talking points seem to be on your website and here they are repeated, you know what the Republicans did? They said, "Oh, no, 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 those talking points weren't meant to be public and they took them off the web." <laughs> That's awesome. Now, are they all repeating the same talking points? Well, we're going to let you decide. Clip number
4: 12. 3.6 trillion dollar budget released by President Obama. Spends too much, taxes too much, borrows too much. This budget spends too much. It taxes too much and it borrows too much. It spends too much. It taxes too much. And it borrows too much. This budget spends too much. The budget taxes too much. The budget borrows too much. Simply put the budget spends too much, it taxes too much.
5: And it borrows too
4: much. The President's budget spends too much, taxes too much, and borrows too much and the American people know it. The spending in this budget is so massive. 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 This budget is so big that independent estimates say they're going to need another quarter million people, 250,000 more federal Washington bureaucratic workers just to spend all the money. But some estimate more than 250,000 Government workers will be needed uh, to spend it all. That independent estimates suggest roughly 250,000 new federal bureaucrats may be needed just to spend it all. That independent estimates suggest roughly 250,000 new government bureaucrats may be needed just to spend it all. That according to the Heritage Foundation estimates, 250,000 new federal bureaucrats may be required just to spend it all. One independent estimate suggests that the federal government will have to hire 250,000 new bureaucrats just to pass out all the money. At a moment when the economy is already seriously challenged. At a time when the stock markets are unsteady. At a time when we can't afford it. At a time when Utah's and Americans are tightening their wallets. Families are tightening their budgets. The president's plan includes the largest tax increase in history. It contains the largest tax increase in American history. The biggest tax hike in history. This budget contains the largest tax increase in the history of our country we need to remember that middle-class families and small businesses are making sacrifices.
5: The American people are making the sacrifices at a time when middle
4: class families and small businesses are making sacrifices. Middle class families and small businesses are making sacrifices. Middle class families and small businesses are making sacrifices when it comes to their own budget. When it comes to their own budget. With their own budgets. Middle class families and small businesses all across this country. These are the people who are making the financial sacrifices every day. But not in Washington. The federal government continues to spend trillions of taxpayer dollars on bail and new government programs. Washington to, continues to spend trillions of dollars on bailouts and new government programs. Yet Washington continues to spend trillions of taxpayer dollars on bailouts and other government programs. Yet Washington continues to spend trillions of taxpayer dollars on bailouts and other government programs. Yet Washington continues to spend trillions in taxpayers' dollars on bailouts and big government programs. Trillions for bailouts and other government spending bailouts and on wasteful government programs it's business as usual in washington so
6: <laughs> come on right that's amazing they're robots yeah they're um, all they're all robots and those were in the those are points from the website
3: those are points that all talking points taken from gop.gov now Look, it's one thing that you say, "Hey, look, they're disciplined; they stay on point." You know, sure. as Bush said, "You know, in order to
7: catapult the propaganda, I got to repeat things,
3: <laughs> right?" But if you notice in the middle, one of them said, "Oh, it's from uh, these numbers are from an independent, yeah. uh, you know, uh, place," and then somebody else slipped in there that it was the Heritage Foundation. John Kyle mentioned the Heritage Foundation, right? In fact, those all those so-called facts are fed to them by the Heritage Foundation, which gets funding from people like the Koch brothers, whose job is to make sure, or whose aim is to make sure that they get lower taxes and less regulation, so that they can continue to do business as they want. So this is all, the reason that I tell you that is because it's all part of the same machine, and the goal of the machine is lower taxes for the richest people, and get rid of regulation so Wall Street can do whatever they
6: want. The oil companies can do the pollution like Koch brothers want to do and not have environmental regulation. And, and, and the, the, the thing of it is that that is, a, you know, if, if you're the Koch brothers and, and you obviously want lower taxes and you want benefits to move your company offshore, where you don't have to pay any taxes. And if you're part of the financial structure of this country and if you're, then you want lower, less regulation. I, I get all that. Right. That's your business. Of course you do just understand that when they then make the argument that that's what's good for the economy they couldn't have had less regulation over the last thirty years and really over the last ten years since bush got into office was the massive started with clinton but most of the deregulation occurring then well we know what happened so i get that they want it of course they want it. no harm in wanting it the harm is in giving it to them and allowing them to make that second argument that that's what's good for the economy God forbid you put these regulations on it; you'll stifle growth.
3: Right, and the harm is that these Republicans are disingenuous. Like, that's why we're having, I mean, we're having a silly debate in this country. I mean, these guys are literally like corporate robots. Well, not quite literally, because they
6: apparently are still human beings. But almost, you know, they're you know they're human beings because John Kyle did this at the end of his thing uh, when he was repeating one of those points. It would require 250,000 more federal workers. Just to spend the money. <laughs> pay- no robot would take his glasses off.
3: Right. So let me be more fair and accurate. They're paid actors at working for the largest multinational corporations in the world. They
6: are. They are on a reality show. They're the cast of Jersey Shore, and they're on a reality show, and the cameras are on, and they're playing their part.
8: Play your part now, only two. Today's story is called, Elitist Nonsense – The Right's Favorite Scare Word is Elitism. What does it mean? And it's written by Jacob Weisberg. If there's one epithet the right never tires of, it's elitism. Republicans are constantly accusing Democrats of it this campaign season, as when Kentucky Senate nominee Rand Paul attacked President Obama as a liberal elitist who believes that he knows what is best for people. With the Tea Party's rise, conservatives have even begun accusing each other of it, as Sharon Angle, the Nevada GOP nominee, did when she charged that Robert Bennett, the outgoing senator from Utah, has become one of the elitists that is no longer in touch. Other days, they simply lament that the entire country is falling prey to it, as California Senate nominee Carly Fiorina recently did in asserting that the American dream is in danger because of the elitists in charge of the government. When the rich former CEO of one of America's largest companies casts herself as a victim of elitism, we've surely strayed far from any literal definition of the term. So what do Republicans mean by this French word? Unlike the radical socialist C. Wright Mills, who popularized the term to describe shared identity based on economic interests, Republicans use it with connotations of education, geography, ideology, taste, and lifestyle such that a millionaire investment banker who works for Goldman Sachs, went to Harvard, and reads the New York Times is an elitist, but a billionaire CEO who grew up in Houston, went to a state university, and contributes to Republicans, is not. Brian Williams picked up on this blurriness when he interviewed John McCain and Sarah Palin together on NBC in 2008 and posed a brilliantly simple question. Who, he asked the Republican running mates, is a member of the elite." Palin responded first. I guess just people who think that they're better than everyone else, she said. McCain then elaborated, I know where a lot of them live, in a nation's capital in New York City, the ones Palin never went to a cocktail party with in Georgetown, who think that they can dictate what they believe to America rather than let Americans decide for themselves. Thus did the son and grandson of admirals, a millionaire who couldn't remember how many houses he owned, accuse his mixed-race opponent, raised by a single mother and only a few years past paying off student loans, of being the real elite candidate in the campaign. Though they sound nearly identical, there is a significant distinction between the Palin and the McCain definitions. Palin's definition says elitists are those who think they're better than other people, a category in which by Election Day, on the evidence of her autobiography, included many of the people working for her own campaign. Palin is raw with the disrespect she feels and takes offense at being condescended to by people who she thinks think they are better than she is. Her anti-elitism takes the part of all Americans who feel similarly snubbed, and not necessarily in the context of politics. This version is a synonym for social snobbery, with the wrinkle that it's not based on family, ethnicity, or wealth, but rather on the status that in contemporary American society is largely conferred by academic institutions. McCain, by contrast, defined elitism not as believing you are better than other people, but believing that you know better than other people. This is Rand Paul's point about liberals. They think they can tell us what to do and that most Americans aren't smart enough to take care of themselves, he said in his recent rant against the Lower Manhattan Mosque. So much for libertarianism. And I think that's a really arrogant approach to the American people. It also seems to be what Newt Gingrich has in mind when he pops off about government of the elites, by the elites, for the elites. In the McCain-Paul Gingrich usage, An elitist is someone who thinks the opinion of a minority should sometimes prevail over the opinion of a majority. It's easy to grasp the political resonance of both definitions. Palin's umbridge at liberals who act superior to conservatives plays upon the American ideal of social equality. In a meritocratic society, rejection can bring an even worse sting than under an aristocratic or hereditary one because those who were less successful can't blame outcomes on the arbitrariness of the system. Palin's posture of victimization is a response to this sense of exclusion. The irony is that she assumes this posture in the service of policies whose effect is to deepen the inequalities of American life. McCain's protest against anti-majoritarianism likewise strikes a deep popular chord. It has the further advantage of providing an escape hatch from the substance of issues by reframing them in cultural terms. Arguments for raising taxes, expanding health insurance, and fighting climate change are all met by the rejoinder that some people should quit telling the rest of us how to live our lives. The irony of this position is that this sort of automatic populism is the least conservative of political philosophies. It was Edmund Burke who most famously articulated the principle that elected legislators owe their constituents their best judgments rather than acting as conduits for majority opinion. In fact, it's both valuable and necessary to have experts guide decision-making on complex subjects. I'd rather have a nuclear energy policy set by Nobel laureate Stephen Chu of Berkeley than by a plebiscite, or have military procurement rules led by John McCain, for that matter. The problem with the GOP's elite bashing is not their definition, but their contradictions. In practice, conservatives are no less inclined than liberals to adopt superior stances or to tell people how to live their lives. Palin's counter-snobbery holds those who live in the middle of the country, own guns, and go to church are more authentic, more the real America, than those who live in coastal cities, profess atheism, or prefer a less demonstrative style of patriotism. But the insistence that gay people not be married, or that some go without health insurance, or that gas be lightly taxed, reflect choices about how other people should live no less than the opposite positions. Gingrich and others cast democratic decisions as illegitimate only when they conflict with right-wing ideology. If an unelected judge upholds gay marriage, he's practicing liberal elitism. But if the same unelected judge were to invalidate Obama's health care legislation, he would be defending the Constitution. Such hypocrisy is based on the construct of a pre-political state of nature where we lived in abstract freedom until government arrived to limit and control us. In the real world, we suffer from self-righteous conservatives as well as smug liberals, from as many Republicans as Democrats who think they know best. Arrogance and paternalism remain bipartisan attitudes. Elitism, it seems, is in the eye of the beholder.
0: If you're like most Americans, you like to collaborate with others to work on projects as a way to get others to do your work for you. The downside of this is that you would normally have to interact with these people in person to show them exactly how you'd like your work to be done. Well now with GoToMeeting, there's no need to ever see another person again. Using GoToMeeting's easy to use software, you can meet online using audio, instant chat, and screen sharing to efficiently and effectively delegate tasks away from yourself without anyone knowing you haven't shaved or kept up on virtually any personal hygiene in days. You can experience your first 45 days of this kind of bliss by visiting gotomeeting.com and using the promo code PODCAST. That's gotomeeting.com, promo code PODCAST, for this special free 45-day trial.
9: Now, uh, we are just weeks away from this year's midterm elections, as you well know. Representing the culmination of months, sometimes years of intense planning, meticulous strategizing the best hopes and dreams of hundreds, perhaps thousands of those who work tirelessly to keep a candidate on track to possible victory. Work that can be completely wiped out. Like that, boom. We turn now to Indecision 2010, Unforced Errors Edition. We begin in California, where former governor and always running for governor, Jerry Brown was just starting to win his most recent gubernatorial auction from former eBay CEO, Meg Whitman. Basically, all he needed to do was stay the course, and he would become the governator once again.
1: On the California governor's race, we're gonna play a tape for you that has someone on the Jerry Brown team calling Meg Whitman a name that is usually reserved for prostitutes.
9: <laughs> Desiree? <laughs> Cinnamon? Lucinda J. Knobgobbler? (laughs) Someone from the Jerry Brown
3: campaign is caught on tape calling Meg Whitman a word that rhymes with bore.
10: We can't say the word on television, it rhymes with war. A bad word that rhymes with snore. (laughs) This grown-up, this
9: is a bad Dr. Seuss book. How old are you? Is there anyone out there in basic cable land brave enough to use a word that is actually completely legal to say on television?
3: If you're running against a woman in a close race,
11: don't call her a whore. The whore. Her call
9: a whore. her
12: a whore. I
11: stayed on the non-whore side of that line. The non-whore side of the line.
9: Mm, slow down there, Julius. S. You don't have to make up for everybody not saying whore. Actually, you know my favorite part of that clip isn't Joe Scarborough's obvious glee. It's his co-host, Mika Brzezinski's (laughs) obvious disdain. But I never called her a whore. There's a little difference there.
13: Please stop saying the word. I know you're enjoying
14: yourself (laughs) and you think you're really funny.
9: That chemistry is so Parker Spitzer. (laughs) By the way, no, lose that, yeah. (laughs) Could Mika, could she look any nicer? Re- resplendent in a canary yellow ensemble, while he, in his most buttafuocoed fleece. <laughs> Where in the real world, other than this car show, would you ever see these two together? The only situation I could see this coupling making sense visually would be in the cab of his tow truck after she broke down on her way <laughs> to see her horse race in the Kentucky Derby or promoting her new book, Well, I Never, (laughs) at his Ozone Park garage sale. That's her book, Well, I Never. (laughs) Bit of an unforced error from the Jerry Brown camp, but compared to some of the other races around the country, Jerry Brown's doing okay.
8: A Republican congressional candidate, Rich Ayod, a Tea Party favorite from Ohio, dressed up there in a German SS uniform for Nazi reenactments. Hogan!
9: Really? Is that how old I am? Hogan's Heroes? You guys are just like, man, I don't know what that is. Hogan's Heroes. LeBeau, Kinch. Richard Dawson, before he was on Family Feud. Nah, don't even try it. I'm just gonna go home, drink some Metamucil and go to bed. The truth is, th- th- this guy, he's not, a, he's not a Nazi. He's a history nerd. Guy likes doing reenactments. World War I, Civil War, War of the R- Roses, I think he did. <laughs> it's a kind of nuanced personal background color so well understood in our modern media age.
10: A congressional candidate dressed as a Nazi soldier. Dresses as a Nazi.
11: I want to go to the Nazi story. A Nazi reenactor.
10: Nazi reenactments.
11: Wearing a Nazi uniform. Are
1: Is this some kind of homoerotic that? thing they do? They put on these uniforms and dance around. What do they actually do?
9: <laughs> homoerotic? They're not reenacting 300. <laughs> classic unforced error by I. You know, Ronald Reagan's first rule, never attack a fellow Republican. His second rule, never dress up like a Nazi. I'm sure if you just look up on this guy's uh, group's website, you'll see, oh, that's not good. Marching, <laughs> as a, combat drills as Nazis, and, oh, community outreach as Nazis. Why, why yes, I, I am your insurance agent, Jim Ferguson, dressed as an official in the Luftwaffe, and I, I do know that you fought bravely against those same, oh my God, ice cream truck. <laughs> By the way, unforced errors can happen anywhere, even the simplest of tasks. Take Charlie Crist, he's running for Senate in Florida. He was just going through the rope mechanics of running for office, giving some speeches, meeting some people, uh, kissing a couple of babies, looking interested, uh, you know, and then he goes to throw out the first pitch at a Tampa Bay Rays playoff game and, oh boy. <laughs> Well, Charlie Chris defense, it's, it's actually not so bad when you see what he was aiming at. Pretty impressive. Ah! <laughs> it's, uh... We refer to that as a callback. Of course, for some candidates like New York gubernatorial hopeful Carl Paladino, the unforced error is allowing TV cameras anywhere near you when you're speaking.
7: I just think my children and your children will be much better off and much more successful <clears throat> getting married and raising a family. And I don't want them to be brainwashed into thinking that homosexuality is an equally valid or successful option. It isn't.
9: That's Carl Paladino. he's talking about uh, gay teachers in public schools. So that's Carl Paladino making the case to orthodox religious folk that gay people will brainwash their children into dressing and acting in an unconventional manner. (laughs) Gay people. Of course, it's not really about Palladino's views on homosexuality. It's about his opponent, Andrew Cuomo's permissive and decadent
7: attitude. We were raised with family values. These people that are running our state right now, they don't have those values. And I think Andrew's actions in taking his kids to a gay pride parade, I think those clearly define Andrew as a person that's somewhat out of the box when you talk about family values. That's
9: Carl Palladino. (laughs) Making the case that he is the family values candidate because he would never take either one of his two simultaneous families to a gay pride parade. (laughs) I, I don't know what you're applauding. <laughs> How does a man as straight as Carl Palladino know so much about gay pride parades?
7: A gay pride parade, and I don't know if you've ever been to one, but but they 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 wear these little uh, uh, speedos and they and they grind against each other, and it's just a terrible thing. I was at one in Toronto one time. We stumbled on it, my wife and I. It wasn't pretty.
6: We. Uh... I was, uh,
9: I was out with the wife there. We uh, we heard a beat, like a pulsing, like a techno beat, like a... The next thing I know, I'm on top of a float, chest covered in butter, slamming amyl nitrate poppers, and just dancing through a forest of dongs. Anyway, I'll tell you what. It was the worst Canadian Thanksgiving ever. Missed the last train.
1: i
7: pushing myself to finish this part. handle a lot.
5: One thing I miss. In your
2: eyes, in your
5: eyes. I've always felt the. Nine Most Terrifying Words in the English Language are, I'm from the Government and I'm here to help.
4: I believe that Ronald Reagan had it right. I've always felt that the Nine Most Terrifying Words in the English Language are, I'm for the government and I'm here to help Ronald Reagan once said, the Nine Most Terrifying Words in the English Language are, I'm from the Government, and I'm here to help you.
10: What if you are the government though? Does that mean you shouldn't try to help? What are you trying to do with your job in government if trying to help is a very bad thing? What else could you do in government? You know, what happened today in Washington we should have seen coming. We should have seen it coming back in February. In February, most of the country was mortified when Republican Senator Jim Bunning, a lone senator with a reputation for eccentricity, Jim Bunning personally stood up and used his power as a senator to stop unemployment benefits for the country. Remember that? Jim Bunning turned himself into a one-man roadblock as Democrats tried to pass an extension of unemployment benefits through the Senate.
4: Is there objection?
8: senator from kentucky objects i'll be here as long
4: as
7: you're here and as long as all those other senators are here and i'm going to object every time
10: and object he did over and over again and over and over and over and over again senate rules allow that And sometimes when you've got a guy like Jim Bunning, people who are unemployed through no fault of their own, get cut off from unemployment benefits because that one somewhat eccentric senator has decided he's got a problem with it. When that happened back in February, we should have seen then what was coming today. Because after Jim Bunning finally relented, back in February, after this millionaire ex-baseball player finally gave up his crusade against the unemployed, we should have seen what happened today in Washington coming. When the whole country was pretty much mortified by what Jim Bunning had done. But one very important, very small constituency felt otherwise. They were not at all horrified by what Jim Bunning had done, quite the contrary.
4: I admire the courage of the uh, junior senator from Kentucky, Senator Bunning. Somebody has to stand up finally and say enough is
11: enough. He stood like a solid rock
5: and he didn't give in. And I respect him for the courage he showed. Senator Bunning from Kentucky has taken a courageous stand
10: to hold the Democrats, in fact all of us, accountable to the things that we say we believe. When Republicans praised Jim Bunning back then, we should have seen what happened today coming. We should have seen it coming a month after the Jim Bunning fiasco too, when when health reform faced its final passage in the Senate. Health reform had already passed the House at this point. It had already passed the Senate once before. The Senate was just taking up some final fixes to the bill. Health reform was going to pass. But Republicans, remember this? Republicans decided their strategy against it at that point, what they wanted their big showboat of resistance to be at the end, would be keeping the Senate in session until three in the morning. Remember this? Well, they voted on amendments that were essentially laugh lines.
4: One of the Republican amendments wants a public referendum in the District of Columbia on gay marriage. Another Republican amendment wants us to go after the organization ACORN, which just announced its bankruptcy. Another amendment says no prescription Viagra for rapists.
10: These amendments had nothing at all to do with what was going on policy-wise. It was a just-for-show effort by Republicans to stop health reform for a while for the sheer performative pleasure of being seen to be stopping it. It wasn't a real effort to stop the bill, it was an effort by Republicans to show what they were capable of doing. Capable of doing by, by, by just blocking it for a while, till late at night. Just stopping any progress from happening for the sake of showing that they could. Not making any progress on their own, just stopping things. We should have seen then what was coming today. Because today, a lone Republican senator, Jim DeMint of South Carolina, threatened essentially to shut down the federal government using the power that one senator has under Senate rules. Quoting from Roll Call newspaper, Senator DeMint warned his colleagues that he would place a hold on all legislation that has not been cleared by his office before the close of business Tuesday. Any piece of legislation not personally cleared by Jim DeMint will be blocked by Jim DeMint. It is a threat that Roll Call newspaper described as, quote, remarkable. Among the things that the Senate has yet to pass and which Senator DeMint could presumably block is a stopgap spending measure to keep government, uh, to keep the government operating uh, past September 30th. So Senator DeMint, in effect, is now threatening to shut down the entire government a government shutdown like the one we had back in the 90s under Newt Gingrich. Few key differences here, though. For one thing, right now, it's just a lone Republican senator without a leadership position who is threatening this. In 1995, at least, Mr. Gingrich was the Republican Speaker of the House. The other difference is that the government shutdown in 1995 was at least theoretically about something. It was about Republicans wanting President Clinton to cut Medicare and Medicaid and education. This time around, Mr. DeMint is not even bothering to make a case that it is about anything. It's not that Jim DeMint wants some legislative thing that he's not getting. Like, remember when that Alabama Republican senator earlier this year put a blanket hold on all of the president's judicial nominees because he wanted some pork for his district? This is not that. This is not, I'm trying to get this one earmark, this one policy thing changed and if I don't get it, I'm gonna shut down the government. This is just, I'm gonna shut down the government. This is just, I can and so I shall. This is shutting down the government for the pure ideological joy of shutting down the government. It is the fetishization of government shutdown. It is the full fruition of the idea that governing itself is bad. If you campaign for generations on the idea that government itself is bad, that that governing is bad, that policy is bad, that having a legislature that legislates is bad, that the nine scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help because government can never help. It only hurts and government must be stopped. When you campaign on that for generations, then ultimately your anti-government movement births politicians... Who stop government? Who shut it down? For no other reason than that they can because they think it's intrinsically good to do so. And if you do not believe me, explain to me why this idea of a government shutdown keeps getting brought up by the right this year.
7: If government shuts
4: down, we want you with us. with us. We got to We
7: got to So, a shutdown is possible. If the president wants to push it, it is.
6: There's going to be a government shutdown.
10: Just like in 95 and 96. But we're going to win it this time. Government shutdown! Woo! I understand that these arguments are not about shutting down the government for any reason. For any one unbearable thing. It's not a last resort way for Republicans to try to get this one thing that's very important to them that they can't get any other way. It's not that. They just want to shut down the government. Any policy excuse to do that is as good as any other. And Jim DeMint has now just decided that the whole policy hook, that's beside the point. Shutdown itself is good because governing itself is bad. Governing itself must be stopped. Legislating itself is evil and must be stopped, which is a relatively cogent sentiment coming from someone with a black bandana over their face running with a smash the state banner outside a WTO summit in the 90s or something. Uh, but, But coming from a member of the United States Senate? Mr. DeMint, when you spoke to your guidance counselor in high school, did that person really suggest governing as a good career path for you? Because the country does need running. It does need governing. And if you are against that on principle, then government service maybe shouldn't be the right fit for you. The government shutdown back in 1995, the Gingrich shutdown, cost American taxpayers about $800 million. These things are not free. Mr. DeMint today threatened to do it again just for the sake of doing it again. Jim DeMint wanting to do this is not that surprising given how radical his own politics are. So far, the supposed Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, has had no comment on Mr. DeMint's threat to shut down the government. Watch to see how other Republicans and conservatives respond, though, to what Jim DeMint is doing. In policy terms, it is a little spooky about the Senate that one senator can shut down the entire government if he decides to. In policy terms, it's a little spooky. In political terms, it is even more spooky if it turns out that Jim DeMint, in this case, is not standing alone. Well, I won't be afraid. No, I won't be
9: afraid just as long As you stand, stand by me.
0: You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestofleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
8: I won't
11: cry, I won't cry, no I won't shed a tear Mike, we've been talking about the unleashed forces—the people with pitchforks that have been unleashed by a, a doctor Frankenstein who had no idea. Now, and, and the doctor Frankenstein is David Koch. Is his brother Charles Koch? It's Dick Armey. The many doctors it's Frankenstein. News, it's Glenn Beck. Absolutely. And Christine O'Donnell thanking Glenn Beck and, well, actually, the Nine Twelve movement from the podium pulling someone up after her election victory to. Thank them, this, this group of people with pitchforks. But I, I want to ask you, because you make a point that, that, frankly, I think the political scientists, the theorists, are, are you know talking about how this is a movement, this is grassroots, which is nonsense, it's garbage. But what does happen? going forward. What happens as you see it looking ahead to November as these people are out there in the streets with their pitchforks and then it's a general election. What happens then? What
5: happens is every time we have the the opportunity to talk about A where do they develop? They they develop from from the Koch brothers. They develop from corporate America. They are a product not of grassroots, but they're a product of industry. They're a product of the healthcare industry that didn't want healthcare reform. They're a product of the petroleum industry who, who don't want to confront global warming. Why, why would these characters, these, you know, these, old guys, white old guys, be showing up in the streets to talk about something like global warming? I mean, wh- why would they be doing that? Why-, why would they talk about these issues unless they had a reason to be there? The truth is, they're bust there. They're bust in. The <laughs> that's the, why. The money busses in a minute. Look, the Kochs are long-time, they call themselves libertarians. In any other in any other setting, they'd be called fascists. Well, but, David
11: Koch ran for vice president right, as a libertarian, which is, which is hysterical when yeah. you think about
5: it. Okay, so here's these libertarians. They believed in certain basics they wanted to lower taxes for themselves primarily because i call them inheritance babies they've they didn't earn it they inherited most of what they have and they want to they don't want to pay taxes on they want to minimize social services for people who need social services they don't want any oversight by government they don't want any any environmental regulations look the university of massachusetts amherst the uh, political economy research institute they named the coke industries one of the top ten polluters in the united states greenpeace issued a report that said the company is they call them the kingpin of climate science denial Why is that? Why is it they're putting so much money into deregulation? Why are they trying to dumb down the government? Because they understand that they are thugs. They are corporate thugs. And if you can, if a corporate thug can have somebody out there that looks like a movement, if they can get these old guys that are shut-ins, you know, to show up at rallies because they don't have anything else to do, and they can get them talking about something that sounds patriotic, but it's really simply about corporate money, if they can do that, it's a huge victory for the Koch brothers and, and for the Fox News and for the, all the people who think like the Koch brothers.
11: And, Mike, to our new friends here in Los Angeles listening on KPFK, let's tell people that in California in November, there was a proposition on the ballot funded by Texas oil companies and funded by the Koch Brothers, Proposition 23, which is going to roll back the environmental protections that were passed by the legislature in California in 2006, and here's what they're doing. It's so insidious. They're spending millions and millions of dollars saying that they're going to try and protect jobs and create jobs in California at a time of high unemployment. So what they're doing, the Koch Brothers are funding this Proposition 23, that if it passes, will freeze all the environmental protections until the unemployment rate comes down to 5.5%. It's not been at 5.5% since 1980 more than three <laughs> times. So they're, they're basically gutting environmental okay. protections for their own right. interests. And what
5: you have in California is these dummies... These absolute low information dummies that are, they don't have the discipline to read what's behind it. They don't have the discipline to understand who the Koch brothers are, why they would put millions of dollars into Proposition 23. It doesn't have to do with jobs. It has to do with their industry that is the top, one of the top polluters, air polluters in the United States. So why do they do these things? They do these things because it serves them. They do these things because they know that if you can chum up and frenzy up the masses, then all of a sudden you have this aura of legitimacy. So, but I gotta tell you something. The good news to all that, maybe they've chummed up too far, maybe they've created the frenzy too much. It is destroying the it is destroying the Republican Party. There's no question about it. It's not a Republican Party anymore. Doesn't look anything like the Republican Party. And now the good news is the Republican Party has closed down the big tent. It's not a big tent anymore. If you're not if you're not a frenzied, crazy teabagger type, you don't fit in.
10: It seems like a That you play in your head I've seen it for years Does it get you anywhere? A bag of wasted days Is chained to your waist Soon it will be a bag of regret So what have you done? Boy, what have you done? The reasons of being Are so easy now You can close your
1: eyes But you don't know what need means You don't know the meaning now Election day is almost here, and campaigns are getting dirty as the Democrats get desperate. The latest victim is Ohio GOP congressional candidate Rich Iott. Jim? Republican candidate and Tea Party
11: darling Rich Iott wore a Nazi uniform in World War II reenactments.
6: Iott says he's just fascinated, though, by history and did it to bond with his young son. <laughs>
1: That's right. (laughs) Fathers bond with their sons in all kinds of ways. Building a boat, fixing the car, solving the Jewish problem. (laughs) And you can't fault, folks, you can't fault a guy for being passionate about history. I ought to explain, I've always been fascinated by the fact that there was a relatively small country that, from a strictly military point of view, accomplished incredible things. See? He's just fascinated by Nazis because they're incredible. <laughs> now, I don't expect the liberal elites out there to understand how fun it is to spend family time annexing the Sudetenland. So, no surprise that this past Sunday, Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz criticized Ayat's innocent love of knee-high leather jackboots. <laughs> but I was disappointed when the GOP's Eric Cantor ran away from a fellow Republican. Uh, now, Debbie,
11: went launched into her attacks as to uh, some of the uh, reports about candidates that are running, and particularly <laughs> the one in Ohio having to do with a Nazi reenactment, she knows that I would absolutely repudiate that and then not support an individual well, that haven't. would do something like that. Uh, I, I'm doing it right here. Uh, I'm doing it
1: right here, <laughs> Debbie. Uh, you know good and well that I don't support anything like that. Thanks, Eric Cantor. Without your support, now IOT's going to lose the Jewish vote. (laughs) Plus, this is going to make the Republicans look divided. Up until now, Tea Party candidates could do anything without rebuke from party leaders. I mean, no one condemned Christine O'Donnell for having been a witch. No one slammed Connecticut Senate candidate Linda McMahon for doing this. I did not see Eric Cantor condemning New York gubernatorial candidate Carl Palladino when he expressed this concern for our children.
7: I don't want them to be brainwashed into thinking that homosexuality is an equally valid or successful option. It isn't.
1: Or when Palladino mass emailed a bestiality video. <laughs> of course, the bestiality video wasn't bad for children because it was a woman and a male horse. Nothing gay. (laughs) So to recap, for the Republican leadership, the line you can't cross, as is so often the case in life, is dressing like a Nazi. (laughs) Thankfully, dressing the president as a Nazi, still okay.
0: a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
4: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Alyssa Blod.
14: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Turn on a TV just about anywhere in the country right now, and you'll see tough political attack ads. Millions of dollars are being spent on these ads by groups organized as nonprofits. They do not have to disclose their donors, and they do not have to tell the truth. We'll get to that in a moment. First,
13: NPR's Andrea Seabrook and Peter Overby are trying to track some of these groups. The first part of their story aired on Morning Edition today, In the second part, they ask this question. Do voters care who funds the ads? First things first. It is perfectly legal for these groups to raise contributions in any amount. Keep their donors anonymous. And run hard-hitting political ads like this one we saw last week in Pittsburgh. Call Sestak. Tell him what's good
9: for Pelosi is bad for Pennsylvania. The U.S. Chamber is responsible for the content of this advertising.
14: Wave after wave of attack ads are breaking over Pittsburgh's TV airwaves, many from these non-candidate, non-party, supposedly non-political groups, like the U.S. Chamber's attacks on Democratic Senate candidate Joe Sestak.
13: We asked several groups for interviews. They all refused or didn't call us back. But those who defend the lack of transparency give this rationale.
14: The information in attack ads should stand on its merits. Viewers do not need to know who funded the ad.
13: Not surprisingly, Democrat Joe Sestak, one candidate under attack, doesn't agree. He's slightly behind in the polls, and he's trying to turn the tables on the U.S. chamber.
7: They really do want somebody who's going to represent them. So they've made trying to make Pennsylvania into an auction when it's supposed to be about an election.
14: As for Sestak's opponent, Republican Pat Toomey, well, the Chamber's ads seem to help him. His campaign acknowledged this. When we asked spokeswoman Nahama Soloveitchik, does Toomey benefit from the ads attacking Sestak?
2: I think it's
12: important for people to know about Congressman Sestak's record. I think it is important for people in Pennsylvania to know exactly what Congressman Sestak voted
13: for. Some see anonymity in politics as a broad constitutional right. Sean Parnell is president of the Center for Competitive Politics, an advocacy group based outside Washington in Virginia. It works to end most restrictions on political money. There is a time-honored tradition in America of anonymous speech in politics. There is a tradition... The question is, does it make a difference to you if a political message comes from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, or a labor union, or some Citizens For or Americans For group that you've never heard of? We took that question to voters.
14: In a bar, tucked among the old brick townhouses of Pittsburgh's north side, is the unassuming storefront of the Monterey Pub. It's a local place, the comfy, beloved hangout of neighbors who stop by after work for a great burger and Guinness on draft.
13: Both TVs are on the local news, at least until the Penguins game starts, and Andrew Wickesburg nurses a pint. He's not shy about his opinion of attack ads.
12: I hate those things. I, they just disturb me on some inner level. It's just not good for us, not good for anyone, really, to watch those things.
14: What really makes Wickersburg crazy? Having no idea who funded the ads.
12: Obviously, it's a viewpoint that's held by somebody, but it doesn't have any information that I can really back up without going and looking for myself
13: over at the end of the bar Jana Thompson agrees and she says researching every ad is just impossible
14: if it takes me 20 minutes of internet searching to find out cuz I don't, you know I always saw that ad and there was that thing and I had to know the name and Yeah, I'm never gonna do that. Nobody's gonna do that. Over in a little booth in the corner, two old friends, Jim Lawrence and Dennis Nolan, pick at their last fries. They're both exasperated by the situation, which Lawrence says is made worse by the ambiguous names of the supposedly non-political groups.
12: You know, I mean, these things can be financed by anybody. If they want to chop down apple trees, it'll be called the Green Apple Coalition.
14: And Nolan thinks keeping the donors secret actually hoodwinks the viewer into paying attention to the attack rather than its purpose.
11: Uh, When you do find out who's funding them, uh, the motivations
12: are just just crystal clear.
13: Keeping the funding secret allows a corporation to pursue its own interest in the guise of supporting the people's interest. As Andrew Wickersford put it,
12: There are a lot of corporations around here that would benefit from having a candidate that has their interests at heart not necessarily our interests.
14: Here in the Monterey Pub, the feeling is strong and unanimous. These voters want to know exactly who is funding the attack ads, and the fuzzy, feel-good name of an organization is not enough.
13: Now, a final note. Often overlooked by stories on money and politics this campaign season, the easy path for corporate money to flow into partisan politics was opened in large part by last winter's Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. But the court itself, in that very decision, wrote a strong opinion in favor of rapid and clear disclosure of political spending.
14: Quote, the First Amendment protects political speech, and disclosure permits citizens and shareholders to react to the speech of corporate entities in a proper way. This transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers
13: and messages. That's the opinion of the Supreme Court. And from what we heard in Pittsburgh, it's the opinion of many voters, too. Peter Overby and Andrea Seabrook and PR News.
3: Tremendous frustration uh, with uh, politicians who won't do what they said they're going to do. I get that 100%. At the same time, we're left with no alternative because the alternative is the Republican Party, wholly owned subsidiary of multinational corporations and the richest people in America. So uh, now, look, we don't live in an ideal world. I wish we did, but uh, we don't. And we almost always have to choose between the lesser of two evils uh but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and vote. You absolutely positively should vote because the other option is more evil. Now it means you fight harder the next time around in primaries to make sure we get good options, right? But the reality is there's four different kinds of democrats if you ask me. And I'll tell you what it makes sense to vote for and what it doesn't, okay? There is one category that I wouldn't vote for under any circumstances. So, it's not like I say, "Oh, vote for a democrat blindly." Hell no. So, if Joe Lieberman calls himself a Democrat and expects my vote, <laughs> hell no. No way, no how. I would never in a million years vote for Joe Lieberman. Ben Nelson's on that list, Evan Bayh is on that list. It, there's never been a pro corporation, pro rich person bill that screws the middle class and helps the richest 1% that those guys didn't love. They're not getting my vote under any circumstances. Now, if you now, luckily, Lieberman will be destroyed in the next election. Evan Bay uh, is already retiring, so he can go make millions from his friends uh, in lobbying circles. Ben Nelson's still in there, right? Uh, but you should primary him the next uh, opportunity you get. No question about it. Okay. Now that's the first group, and so you do primaries. But if you know what, in a general election, you go vote anyway. Write in Alan Grayson. I don't care. Write in Russ Feingold. Write in J.R. Jackson. But you should. Always vote, because if you don't vote, that means you don't give a damn and you don't have any right to complain about what the results were. Okay? Now, number two, there's is the great mass of the Democratic Party. Guys who I disagree with all the time, guys that drive me crazy that we talk about here, some who richly deserve primaries, primary opponents, so we can get real progressives in there. But are they better than the Republican alternative? Unquestionably. You vote for them now, you hold your nose. That's, de- hey, look, I wish democracy worked better, but it doesn't. That's your realistic choices. You go vote for them, and next time around, if you really think that they're worth uh, fighting, you fight them in a Democratic primary, okay? That's 90% of the Democratic Party. But there is a third group. The third group is real progressives who've been fighting for you the whole time. Some of them are in tough, tough districts. I often talk about Alan Grayson, he's in a district. That was totally Republican before he came in. He's fighting for his life. And then you uh, got Mary Cho- uh, Joe uh, Kilroy in Ohio. She's a strong progressive. They both just signed a letter saying no more tax cuts for the rich. Now Washington conventional wisdom is, oh my God, it's before an election. You give tax cuts to the rich because the Republicans will yell at you. What Mary Joe Kilroy and Alan Grayson and Rahul Girahalba and others are saying: No, we're progressives. We think that would hurt us in an election, not help us. We would wish we could pass the Tax cuts for everybody else, and then beat up the Republicans because they only care about the rich. They're damn right. And if after all their struggles and their fights, the few that are, are out there, you don't support them during crunch time, well, you got nobody to blame but yourself. Because then you would be whining and complaining. Because these guys are for you. Now look, I don't have the definitive list of those people. I tell you, I like Periello in Virginia, of course Grayson in Florida, etc. Kilroy in Ohio, etc. But Democracy for America, and we will provide the link for you. So check it under the video, check it on our website, theyoungturks.com. We already have a blog post about it. Okay. They do have a list of the toughest, strongest progressives. Now, I don't work for them, so I, I am not sanctioning the whole list and i don't know every position of every person on that list but at least democracy for america which are real progressive fight is started by howard dean now led by jim dean among others arshad hassan etc those guys fight they're real progressives they got a list they are the guy, these are the guys that stood up for us especially if they're in tight races you got to go stand up for them otherwise what are you in politics for why do you care about politics go home okay they fight for you you got to fight for them Now I said four categories. There is a fourth category, but there's only one person in that category, and his name is Russ Feingold. He's the Feingold standard. Okay, there is no other politician I would trust, blankly. Okay, but if you said, "Hey, Jenk, there's a vote you can't make it. What's the one politician you send a vote in your place?" It would definitely be Russ Feingold, and not because he's strict party line. Not at all. He often crosses the party line. Do you know Russ Feingold crosses party lines uh, uh, more than? Everybody but 90, but six people in the Senate. He's among the top six. So there are 94 other guys who are more partisan than Feingold. He's not partisan. He just votes based on principle. And nearly every time I agree with him, because he looks at it and he says, "Look, the Democrats want me to vote for financial reform, but I think this financial reform is a joke. I'm not going to vote for it." He did it before when Clinton proposed financial reform that deregulated. He was one of the six Democrats who said, "No, I'm not going to vote for it. This is going to destroy our economy." he was right so if a guy's been right all this time and he's had the courage to act he was the one senator was ninety nine to one against the patriot act or in favor of the patriot act he was the one guy against it why he said it takes away our civil liberties he was right this is the fine gold standard and now he's down in his race in wisconsin he's down by about seven points to a millionaire republican who got all the advantages of government including subsidies but now wants to cut off all those advantages for anybody underneath him, and who wants to make sure that the, the, his number one priority is tax cuts for the rich? Okay, now you got a real progressive fighter, the progressive fighter, against a millionaire Republican who wants to cut his own taxes. And if you sit on the sidelines, then Obama and everybody else in Washington is right. Then you are whining and complaining and not doing anything about it. You got to get in there. You got to help gold and you got to help the other tough progressives dem- that Democracy for America uh put put out there and they so they selected through hard work. I'm I'm certainly not saying that because I like the Democratic Party. They're not my uncles. I attack them all the time. I hold them accountable because that's what my job is. I'm part of the press. I'm supposed to hold the government accountable. But when you have a vote and you have a choice, we have to make the right choice. And it, it, and when it comes to volunteering or donating, you know what? Ron Johnson is way outspending Ross Feingold. All across the country, there are these conservative groups, uh, a newspaper story out about it today, outspending Democratic groups, not the parties, but oh, allied groups, outspending Democratic groups by six to one across the country. In 15 close House and Senate uh, races in 15 states, I should say, uh, the conservative groups have raised money from the billionaires, from the Koch brothers, literally, okay, that was in the story, among others they go to the richest people in the country. Some of these front groups are only uh, front groups for one person, okay? They set up a fake grassroots organization and it's powered by millions from some of the richest people in the country, okay? They're outspending Democratic allies, progressives, 6 to 1. That's why they got the some of these progressives on the ropes. So the guys who fought for us, you got to get them, help them get up off the ropes. You got to fight back. This is the time to rally the troops. So check out the links, see what you can do, and my God, if you know anybody in Wisconsin,
9: tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell Randy us.
3: I'm coming. We're all coming, man. This is the time to bring to get people's back who had our back.
2: Hi, this is Scott from Boulder. I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for doing this show. I really enjoy it. And uh, second of all, I want to talk about the fact that Iraq is currently holding 30,000 prisoners without charge and um, routinely torturing a lot of them, according to Amnesty International. And um, I find this really upsetting after we've spent... 4,000-plus American lives and a million-plus Iraqi lives and displaced 4 million Iraqis to get rid of Saddam Hussein, who was doing the exact same behavior. And now, imprisonment without charge and routine torture is being done on our watch and on our dime with 50,000 troops on the ground for the alleged purpose of training these very perpetrators of torture and imprisonment without habeas corpus and it's just the kind of democracy that we want to support in the world and what the hell is up with this i think american people are behooved to raise a holy stink about this since we paid for it and we're continuing to pay for it and stuff like that there so that's my thought i don't know if that's an action alert or what but I encourage people to do whatever they can do: write Congress, write letters to the editors, call people up, raise hell, break windows, deface McDonald signs, whatever you can do. Amen. Thank you. Bye.
12: Hi Jay, this is Paul, and I've been listening to your show for a long time. I'm a financial services uh, industry worker, and I just wanted to say to um, all of my fellow Americans. In terms of the bank bailout um, and TARP, thank you very much. Um, our industry was saved. And despite what was said and in, uh, in the bar scenes in New York, uh, people saying that uh, I'm just smarter, that's a bunch of nonsense. It really, really is. And we all shared uh, in the grief we'd all be better Americans for it. So thanks again um, to all Americans. Um, it's an industry we need. Um, it's an industry I worked in and I'm working in. Uh, so we appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Hi Jay, it's Michael from Glen Burnie. I uh, just wanted to call and comment on your 1016 episode about uh, uh, Matt having a liberal slant. Uh, before I started, I just wanted to um, say the last comment you had played from me. Uh, was, you, you kind of played it mainly, uh, to comment on the, uh, on the music being played behind, uh, people as they leave their voicemails. And I just wanted to let you know, for the record, uh, my tongue was planted firmly in my cheek and I didn't really take any offense and, uh, probably secretly was hoping you'd bring the music back just for me to... Uh, take a dick at me. <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure you knew that I, I actually thought it was really funny. Uh, that being said, uh, the episode in question for uh, for um, October 16th was, uh, had, I, honestly, I think that's probably one of the best episodes you've, you've made in a while. Had a lot of really good points on it, and uh, a lot of things I hadn't heard about before. Um, and as such, I can't really... T- and, it's hard to pick and choose which one I want to comment on but I did want to comment mainly on the uh, the young turf uh clip for uh, uh talking about Newt Gingrich and I just I, they, didn't, they didn't really mention it but uh, and it just struck me as, as pretty pretty funny and just in and of itself is that Newt is basically making this sarcastic statement of, "Oh, oh you get the, you get more money back than you spend, so so yeah, well, we could just use that and fix the economy. Oh, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And that would actually work, and that's kind of the sad part. <laughs> he's making this sarcastic comment about something that actually would fix the economy, but he's still going to fight against it, so at any rate, I just thought that was pretty funny, so thank you so much for everything you do, and take care.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called in to leave a voicemail. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action, of course, uh, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And I actually have a question for you guys today. For anyone going to the uh, Washington, D.C. rally, completely regardless of whether you're coming to the best of left meetup afterwards. Like if you're going to the rally, if you have interest in going to the rally, I would love to hear why just like take a moment and think about it and, and figure out like, why would you actually make the effort to go to a rally in DC uh, hosted by the daily show and Colbert. And, and and then a similar question is, um, you know, do you think it has value? Do you think that it actually has value or do you think that it'll just be fun? Like cuz I think I think that it'll be fun is kind of a given. So I'm curious as to whether or not you guys think it's uh it'll be like a really important thing. Uh contrastly, do you think it'll be a waste of time? I'm I'm interested in all these sorts of opinions. If you have thoughts about it, please call in 206-202-3410. Now, I'll tell you the reason I'm going to uh to DC for the rally is uh is because chris priest is going i just i got the confirmation on facebook he rsvp'd he's gonna go uh he's gonna show up at the best of love meetup and uh if, if you don't know if you've been living under a rock chris priest is uh featured pretty regularly on this show uh with his music and he's a great musician so i'm looking forward like i've, I've known him uh online for a couple of years but i've never met him in person and uh and i think it'll be good to um uh, To meet in person, like maybe get an autograph or something before he gets famous, because then it'll be really valuable. So if you had any reservations about showing up to the Best of the Left meetup, that should pretty much put you over the edge, uh, you know, a chance to meet uh, Chris Priest in the flesh uh, before he's uh, massively famous and and rich with uh, legions of fans. So of course, as I mentioned, all the details about the meetup can be found on my website uh, bestoftheleft.com and also on Um, My Facebook page facebook.com slash best of left there are links to you know The official event where you can RSVP and everything like that Um, But if you're not into the internet uh, and you don't want to look that up the details are that we'll be meeting up on uh, the day of the rally uh, October 30th 4 p.m. at Bar Louie, which is at 701 7th Street Northwest So that's all there is about that. I want to thank a couple of members. Khalid P signed up for a monthly membership back on August 4th and has stuck with the show since then. And Tom S signed up for a full year in advance back on June 2nd. So huge thanks to Khalid and Tom and all of the members and donors who make this show possible. Obviously, I just couldn't do without you guys. What's equally as important as sign up for a membership if you're able, Uh, if you're not able, helping spread the word about the show, Uh, you know, bringing on new listeners, constantly is a, is a great way to help support the show and even you know obviously the most basic thing spread the word spread the word of the show get out more progressive politics and so on and so on and in this information age of course one of the best ways to do that is to get online and spread the word to your social networks of course best of the left is on Twitter and Facebook at twitter.com/bestofleft facebook.com/bestofleft uh join up with us there and spread the word about the show to your friends online For details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
2: Shining sheep The only maker that you want to meet
10: A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out
2: in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond